Hi, would you please remain standing as I read um, God's word? It's from Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. You may be seated. The word of the Lord. All righty. Thank you, Hanju. Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll, we'll jump in. Father, I, I thank you for your word. We, we acknowledge today and, and really week in and week out that we are nothing as a church if we don't have your word. These values that we're exploring as a church come from your word, that you've shaped your church to be a certain way. And so today, as we explore this reality of being grace-oriented, I pray that your spirit would help us to feel again the wonder of grace. God, where grace has become old or routine, where it's so familiar to our hearts, would you reawaken us, God? And for some of us in here, maybe for the first time, Would you awaken us to the grace of Jesus Christ? And from that grace, would you teach us and shape us and help us to be a church of grace? That doesn't just receive grace from you, but actually gives it to one another. And we know our hearts all too well to know that that has to be a work of your spirit. And so God, would would you unite your power with my weak words today? And would you produce grace and wonder and joy? We trust you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was the one time that I did not enjoy going on a hike. Uh, In 2014, I went on a short little camping trip, hiking trip with two of my closest friends, uh, one of which is Kyle, who's our worship director, uh, and then our mutual friend named Ryan. Um, So it was on the Colorado Trail, just a small part of it. The whole trail is like 280 miles. It goes from Durango to Denver. It's it's insane. And uh, we drove from, uh, we lived in Dallas, Texas at that point. So we drove from Dallas all the way to Durango to to do this hike, drove 12 hours straight through. We tried to leave early in the morning so that we could get there and just hop on the trail and get going. And so, uh, but right before this, I had just finished uh, a level one, don't be too impressed, okay? a level one certification in survival skills. That's amazing, which means I can make a fire. <laughs> but I felt so good about it. I, I was so happy about it. And I, like, I'm not a survivalist, but it, it is something that I love. And I even have this little red tin can that uh, is the same thing that the Swedish search and rescue team carries. And I just love it. Love Bear grills, all the stuff. And so I go into this hiking trip so confident. You know, I, I, I bring next to nothing almost to just prove myself. Um, and me, me, Kyle, and Ryan, we get started on this hike. And it was a short hike. It was only like three and a half miles long. 
but it was like 4,000 feet of elevation gain. It was like super steep. Uh, and so it just kicked our butts on the way up. And we're tired from a 12-hour drive, and we go there, and we, we finally get to the spot we're going to be at. Um, and we, we know, like, it, it's going to be cold. It's uh, January, and so um, we're going to freeze tonight, so let me go ahead and get a fire started. But, you know, being the, the good survivalist that I am, uh, and what was then, a, as a former Texan, I just didn't bring into account the reality of snow. And the soaked wood that comes from that. And so I, I, I try to start this fire, and, and it's not working. And at that point, it's getting dark. And, and me and Kyle are like, okay, we're, we're going to freeze tonight. Like, we've got to just hike back down, get in the car, go into town, and get some firewood. And we left Ryan up there, who was the perfect person to leave pitch black in the dark, you know, had never been camping in his life. And um, he was sitting there in his hammock the whole time, freaked out. And so me and Kyle, we run back down this, uh, th- this trail uh, and we get about maybe 40 feet from the car, and um, we were exhausted at that point. It was maybe like 9 or 10 p.m., and um, full day. And we get, we get close to the car, and Kyle's like, all right, man, where'd you put your keys? And I just said to him, Kyle, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's the only thing I could think to say. And he didn't say a word back. <laughs> he didn't say a single word. And so all we did is we... we cracked open some drinks that we had brought down on the way home, sat in silence, hiked back in silence, and froze that entire night. Um, it's still a story that he will, he will not let me live down. Uh, it was the one time that I did not like being on a trail. And, and what, what was wrong with me in that situation? What, what was the core problem? What, what was wrong is that I, I broke one of the basic survival rules of that your surroundings dictate your response. But what was wrong was the, the orientation that I had. I did not take into account the surroundings that I would have. Instead, I was more oriented to, to who I thought I could be. My, my focus, my, my basic inner inclination was centered around what I thought was my ability rather than our surroundings, and, and that got us into trouble. It's always important to come back to what's your orientation? Like, what's the basic inner inclination that you have in any given situation? And as, as a church, that's the question we want to answer today. What's the basic inner inclination that we should have as a church? What's, what's the orientation that we should have? Grace. Grace should be what, what orients us as individual disciples and, and as a church. Grace should be the core principle that helps us relate to God, how we think about our relationship with God, and how we think about our relationship with one another. Grace is the center. Now, I, I hope that the word grace doesn't just make your, your eyes glaze over. Grace is one of those categories in the Christian faith that we are so familiar with. It's so prevalent and so extensive that it runs the risk of becoming routine. But grace received is routine. Grace that has lost its flavor to us because we're so constantly thinking about it. That view of grace, that is the most surefire way to suck out all the energy in your Christian life. To see grace as just rote and routine is the surefire way to suck out all the energy in your Christian life. You won't do anything. You won't get anything moving. You won't have any affection. Grace is the center. Grace is why we're here. None of us 
myself included, are here as a Christian or an icon or in whatever else as a result of our own works. We are Christians not not because of a family of origin or moral excellence or intellectual convictions. We are Christians because of the outreach of grace in God's heart. This reality of, of divine grace, this has to be the orientation of our lives. An orientation that, that receives it from God and then happily extends it to others. The reality of divine grace has got to be what our hearts stand before, with, with arms wide open to God and to one another. So today, I, I want to talk about grace. And we're going to look at this text in Romans 15 and really explore just, just two basic things. God's grace toward us, and then what that means for our life together as a church. So let's talk about the grace of God toward us. Now, anytime you're talking about the the grace of God, it's it's helpful to kind of break it out into two categories, the achievement of grace and the affection of grace. The achievement of grace and the affection of grace. So so what do I mean by achievement in that first one? Well, let let me just ask you this. How much does grace cost? How how much does grace cost? Is grace something God feels or is grace something God achieves? Well, the answer, as as we'll get through, is is just a plain yes. It's both, but but we often forget that it's something that's achieved. We think it's something that's just exuding from the heart of God that just comes to us with no cost whatsoever. Now, grace, grace certainly is an inclination in God, but it's also an achievement. Grace is not a hand-me-down, ooey-gooey part of God's heart. Grace is purchased. Now, not, not by us, and we're going to get into that, but grace is not just free. Grace is purchased, and, and we need that to be purchased. Grace needs to be purchased not because it has to be coaxed out of the heart of God, as if he's so stingy and stuck up, too prudish. No, grace has to be purchased, not because God's heart is prudish, but because our hearts are too perverted by our sins. Our sins have, caught, have won for us separation. Our hearts that are inclined away from God, there's a penalty to that. There's a consequence to that. We need someone to step in and reverse the tide of our sins, paying the price for them, right? And that's that's kind of what Paul gets into when when he hints at that in the text, right? For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What's he referencing there? The cross, right? That the center of the Christian message is an action in which grace is one. Grace is made possible not just because God wanted to give it to us, though that's certainly true. Grace was made available, grace was made possible because God went out and purchased it, won it, achieved it at the cost of his own dear son. At the cross, God made grace possible. There's certainly a desire in his heart, and we're going to get into that in a second, but, but it first had to be made possible because our sins bear a consequence. 
And God made that possible through the cost of his own dear son. Listen to how Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For, for our sake, because we couldn't do it ourselves, we were weak, for our sake, God acted. And what was his action? The innocent and pure son of God, receiving the stain and substance of sin, our reproaches unto himself, in order that we might be given a, a specific and concrete thing the righteousness of God. Grace, listen, friends, grace is not cheap. Grace is not cheap. Grace is free to us, but it is not free to God. It bore a cost. It bore a price. It cost Jesus his life, and not just his physical life. It was all there on the cross. The spiritual, the emotional, the mental well-being of Jesus was leveled at the cross as he took the stain of our sin, as he bore our reproaches. Grace is not ooey-gooey something coming out of God's heart. It's something that is concretely purchased, that God achieves. But, but grace is not only achieved. If that was true, then we, we'd have great news, but we wouldn't have necessarily a warm Savior like we have, right? Grace is not only achieved, but it's also given to us from a place of affection in God's heart. That there's affection in God's heart that he wants to give us grace. Grace is not just a forensic formula in which we get an outcome. Behind grace beats a heart with affection. And we, we explored this in the spring, if you remember, the, talking about, about the heart of Jesus through that whole series. And man, we forget that, don't we? We view the, the gospel as only a, maybe a forensic formula in which we get an outcome, in which we get a product. But the truth is, is that in the gospel, there is expressed a beating heart of God with a desire, a desire to not, the reason he had not just had to achieve grace, but even wanted to is because he did have and does have affection, desire to do this, God was not obliged to. In fact, he went way out of his way to even do it. There's affection there. Listen, listen to how Paul says it also. Listen to the language in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ Jesus has welcomed you. Think about that. If you know the book of Romans or the letter of Romans well, then you know that this is one of the most dense theological letters in the entire Bible. We, we spent the whole summer going through pieces of it, and there's so much dense theology there, rich theology there. And how does Paul sum it up? How does Paul kind of land the plane here near, near the end of his letter? Christ has welcomed you. It's wonderful. Paul, Paul communicates here that the grace that extends towards sinners can be summed up like this. He welcomes you. Now, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to welcome someone, right? Lots of different ways. You, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat of an introvert, uh, and so whenever we have people over for dinner, um, I want to welcome them into my home, but it takes a little bit of work for me, right? 
Like, like there's a desire there, but there's also a reluctance. I have to kind of uh, get my heart up to speed in order to welcome people in. Not because I don't like people, but just because it, it takes a lot out of me. If I didn't like people, I'd be in the wrong business, right? It's a joyful welcome, but it's, it's also a reluctant one, it, at least initially. Usually it, it gets better when people show up. <laughs> We can also welcome someone by opening our lives to them, right? We can, we can open up the doors to them. We, we say things like, hey, you're welcome to stop by anytime. Or while you're staying here, you're welcome to grab anything out of the pantry. These are uh, meant to be generous and hospitable welcomes. But, but none of that really communicates what Paul is trying to get at here. The, the word welcome here at least in the Greek, it has, so Greek is really weird. Each one has like a, uh, like a core word and then based off of all kinds of different other technicalities and <laughs> dumb stuff um, uh, is how the word shows up. And, and, and the, the, re, the root word here in the Greek, uh, it's meant to convey something of intention. It's, it's actually an, ex, an action. That, that you're intentionally doing something. You're intentionally receiving something into yourself. It's actually the, the same root word that Jesus says when, when uh, in the Gospels, he tells his disciples that they are required, if you want to be my disciple, you need to take up your cross. It's the same root word there, meant to convey intention, action, urgency, and intention, which means this. The welcome that Paul's talking about here, the, the welcome of grace we receive in Christ is a welcome, an affection that, that snatches us in and brings us close, that pulls us closer. It's, it's a welcome that's determined to get you in close, to, to pull you in. The, the gracious heart of God in Christ is not him leaving open the possibility of relationship, but actually wrapping you in, bringing you in, pulling you in. That's the affectionate welcome of God. The grace of Christ which welcomes us in is not God leaving the door unlocked so you can pop in whenever you'd like. It's not the grace of possibility, but the grace of intention. I'm going to pull you close to me because I want you near. I'm, I'm going to pull you in because I want to give you this, this gracious welcome because of the affection of my heart. I want to pull you in. I'm not going to wait for you to come in. I'm going to pull you in. It's like whenever I, you know, I like I said, I used to live in Texas. And one of the things about Texas is that they get absolutely terrible rainstorms, uh, tornadoes and thunderstorms. And they actually get the same amount of rain that Seattle does every year. It just happens in like a week. Um, and, and, and I remember one time, Whenever we, uh, my wife and I had just had Margot maybe a, a few months before that, and it was a terrible thunderstorm, like absolutely pouring down. The streets are already like six inches of water running through it. Uh, and it happened as Courtney was out getting groceries with, with Margot. And, and I was in the house, and then uh, Courtney called me and told me that they were almost home. What, what did I do in that situation? Did I, did I just make sure that the door was unlocked? <laughs> Did I just say, okay, cool, well, I'm going to leave the door open, the, the screen is open, so just kind of run in with groceries and baby in hand? <laughs> no. I went out, and I grabbed that little girl and put my, my jacket over her and ran her in where it was dry and where it was safe. 
because of affection. That, that's what God is in this welcome. It's not an unlocked door that just makes a way for you to get into the shelter that we need. And that, that's true. Grace achieved, like we talk about, actually does unlock the door. But the, more than that, 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 that's only half of it. God actually comes out and welcomes you, pulls you in. That's the gracious heart of God. He runs out into the storm. He doesn't just make sure the door is open. Runs out into the storm and pulls you into where it's safe and where it's dry. That's, that's the gracious welcome that we've received in Christ. Behind the grace of welcome is not just a hospitable opportunity, but an intentional God who snatches us from danger and brings us close. Surely this grace is good enough to make it our orientation, to make it the basic defining principle of our relationship with God at all times. Received grace must be the orientation of our relationship with God at all times. But for many of us, it just isn't. We're still anxious over our acceptance. We're we're, we're still more stunned by our sins than we are the grace of God. We feel more easily the the stain of our sin than we do the, the welcome of our Savior. And friends, I think God just wants to say to some of you today in the most loving and gracious way, get over yourself. Where you feel like your sins are so large, so heavy, so dense, that you think it outmatches and outpaces the grace of God, I want to tell you today, get over your brokenness. Yeah, it's deep. It's real. Our sin is real and heinous, but the grace of God is so much higher, so much fuller. I'm, I'm glad that you feel the conviction. I'm glad that you feel the seriousness of sin, especially in the day and age where Christians are at best half-hearted. I'm glad you feel that. But just feeling that, just feeling the conviction, just feeling the weight is actually not pleasing to God. He wants you to sense his grace. God's desire and his intention to be gracious to you is stronger, and I mean that, stronger than your intention to run away from him. You're even like in, in your desire for sin, your desire to have idolatry and to, and to run away from God and to, to, to look to comfort or look to work or look to sex, whatever else it is, the desire that's leading you there, I want to tell you today, the desire in God's heart to pull you back in is even stronger than that. Whatever sort of energy is pushing you away from God, that momentum of your sin is nothing compared to the momentum of grace. God's grace is fuller. I don't, I, I don't care where you are today or how you're doing. You have not and you will not outpace the grace of God. One, because it's been purchased. Jesus has done it at great cost to himself and if that wasn't enough, what would be? 
but then also because there is in God's heart a, a, a welcome, an intention to still pull you in, to still grab you and snatch you in to his affectionate heart. That's the grace of God. And with a grace like this, it should probably influence more than just our orientation and our relationship with God, right? With a grace so wonderful, it's, it's got to be our orientation to one another. It's, it's, it's got to be. It's not really a choice. Because here's the thing. We can talk about grace all day long. We can have a doctrine of the cross and of the resurrection and of sin that is pure as the driven snow. But if we are not a church that expresses that grace toward one another, we're close to heretics. Because here's the thing, you can unsay with your culture whatever we're saying by our doctrine. You, you can unsay whatever, something with your culture, whatever we're saying by our doctrine. So that's great. If we can talk about the, the doctrine of grace and the way in which the cross of Jesus Christ has, has purchased this great welcome for us, we can have that nailed down. But if we don't have grace for one another, then what's the point? <laughs> what, what's the point of having a doctrine of grace that has never lived out? If that's the truth, then we've, we've lost it. We, we've gone astray. And you see that all over the text in Romans 15, right? Obligation, pleasing one another and bearing with one another's sins, welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed you. This is not an option. Grace for one another in the Christian church is not a choice, a preference, or a personality trait. It's an obligation. The, the, the grace we receive from God is so deep and so wide, so pervasive and life-changing, that to then not extend that same grace to one another shows that we just, we don't get it. We don't get it. Those who, those who get grace, give grace. Those who get grace, give grace. And I don't mean just get it as in receive it, but I mean get it as in know it, as in feel it, understand it. Being so in touch with your own weakness and with the wonder of God's grace that there's then a almost reflex in your heart that wants to give that same grace to others. Those who get grace, give grace, which also means it's opposite. Those who do not give grace, those who don't have that reflex in their heart, they, we don't get it. We don't see it. We don't understand it. We're not, it hasn't wrapped its fingers around our heart enough for us to give it to one another. You can have a, an MDiv, Masters of Divinity, at the, the best seminary in all of the world, but if you don't have grace for one another, it means nothing. It means Nothing. If we understand grace, we will give it to one another at all times, too. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. We, we will give grace to one another at all times. Listen now, Jesus says this in Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 
Peter came into that, into that conversation feeling like he was an overachiever, right? He had an assumption that he was doing well, especially with that number seven, which often signifies wholeness or completeness in the Bible. He, he was trying to say, like, should I just like always completely forgive him? Should I have this even abundance that I, that, that I think is an abundance of grace? Should, should, I, should I do that that many times? And Jesus shuts him, Jesus shuts him down and says, no. That's way too small. Even your abundance has to be multiplied by 10. No matter how long it takes, no matter how often it is, we've got to give grace from one, grace for one another. All because we've received this grace from Jesus. Because the grace of God has, is even multiplied in its fullness, our grace for one another must also. Just as, as Jesus suffered in giving grace, we also must suffer, and man is it suffering, to bear with one another's sins. We must be patient. There's a reason why Paul here invokes in his prayer, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you endurance and encouragement that you may live in unity, have harmony as you glorify God. There's a reason he taps into that piece. Because it takes great endurance to be patient with anyone, to be gracious with anyone. <laughs> but nonetheless, it is, it is our calling as a church. And you know what's wonderful? Another piece of this is being a Christian in real life and expressing the convictions of our faith, in many ways, this day and age is incredibly difficult. But you want to know what's not difficult witnessing to and testifying to the, the beauty of the Christian faith. L living in a world that is so hostile, so divided, this call right here to be gracious with one another is the easiest, and I mean it, the easiest opportunity to show the watching world the beauty of the gospel. Like the, the bar is so low, don't hate one another. You did it. It's so, this is the opportunity. Something like this is the opportunity for our church to witness to whoever wants to come in here, whoever wants to be a part of our life, what the gospel can produce. They walk in and see people not biting at one another, not being jerks to one another. And they just, they think, wow, God must be in their midst because it's so much easier to do the other. But with the gospel of grace, it, it's possible. It's, it's, it's worked in us to be gracious with one another. Now, before I close, I want to give a, a concrete example of what this might look like. Okay? A little bit, little bit of, of real life on it. Listen to this. Uh, let's talk about, so this, this text, he, he goes through a lot of different things and he talks about endurance and encouragement and bearing with one another. And as I, as I read through it and thought through it, the, the idea of, um, uh, of patience rose to the top. That one of the ways that we can, we can express grace for one another is to have this, this core disposition towards one another of, of patience. And so I, I want to talk about patience and, and really exhort us to maybe even just to pick this one in our real life and in our relationships with one another. So it might be obvious what patience is, but, but it's worth exploring. And stick with me. We're going we're gonna to get through this. Patience, obviously, is the virtue of waiting. 
But with Christian patience, it's, it's not a waiting that consists of nothing more than, than twiddling our thumbs. Right? Rather, Christian patience involves waiting for someone, waiting for someone to grow, to reach their end, for God's purposes to be fulfilled in them. Patience as a Christian is the virtue which encounters frustration with one another with a calm and steady frame, waiting for God's purpose to be fulfilled in that other person. That's that's what Christian patience is. Now, unfortunately, patience in a community does not come naturally, nor do we see it very often. We are are more often given to its, its opposites, right? And the obvious opposite is impatience. We are impatient when we are agitated that we can't be in complete control of one another. We can't be in complete control of our relationships. Impatience is our anger directed against the fact that we are hemmed in by others, that there's some measure of fulfillment in this relationship or growth in this relationship that's, that's being denied to us. That's what impatience is. But, but impatience is not the only opposite of patience. There's a far more sinister opposite that we don't really pick up on much. The other form of, of the opposite of patience is slothful resignation. Slothful resignation. What the old church fathers called acedia. Faced with the limits we experience with one another in relationship, we just give up. <laughs> we just give up. We no longer even try to be alert or expectant or attentive to each other's growth. We no longer turn our, our spirits to, to the future and, and dream about the relationship we could have with one another as a community and as a church, but rather we become listless. We become sluggish. Impatience rails against limits, but resignation resigns itself to them and just lets go, abandons hope, and it's overcome by by apathy and indifference. Why bother? I've worked with this person for so long. Why why bother? I'm done. I'm done still working and encouraging this person. I wonder if either of those experiences ring true in your own community. Have you ever, and I don't mean just in yourself, but I mean you as the one who who needed grace in in that moment, have you ever experience that where someone has become so impatient with you. They've just gotten tired of your slow pace in growth and in change. And they've railed against you. And maybe the way they've railed against you is by trying to rush the process of your growth growth and, and put things on you that maybe you weren't ready for yet. Or maybe you've experienced someone just slothfully resigning you to the trash bin of (laughs) no possibility, (laughs) not being able to progress. If we're gracious with one another, if we live in grace with one another, then we have to resist these two things of impatience and slothful resignation. We can be patient with one another. We can be patient with one another in grace. We can slow down and remember that for this fellow Christian, there is a purpose in their life that God 
has determined to fulfill. That he's gonna do it. And so my, my power to be patient with you can last a whole lot longer than it would in my own flesh and in my own strength because I know God's gonna feel, fulfill his promise for you. I don't have to improperly rush it through impatience or unlovingly, ungraciously resign you to never being able to grow. We can trust that God will fulfill his purpose and we can be patient with one another. And that's what actually, that's what actually gets the ball rolling in a relationship. Have you experienced that? When someone's actually patient with you, someone's actually slowing down and not railing against your limits that certainly they want you, certainly you want to grow, but you're, you're, just, you're, you're stuck a little bit. When we're patient with one another, that gets the ball rolling. And we can only do that if we're gracious, if we slow down. Listen to how the, the theologian John Webster says this. Of course, Webster. The patience of the saints is one of the ways in which the gospel converts us away from our sins and restores us to human fellowship. Impatience eats away at friendship and neighborliness. When we are impatient with our fellows, British, we refuse to let them be what they are. We want them to think differently, to be capable in the way we think they ought to be capable, to to match our ideas about what they should do and how and when they should do it. Our impatience is in the end a refusal to let our fellows be, a refusal to allow them the time and space that they need to fulfill God's calling of them. When I'm impatient, I want my neighbor to exist on my terms, in my space, in my time frame. And so, in the end, I I lack love, for love is patient. It waits. It looks not to my selfish ideas of what I want from or for my neighbor, but to my neighbor's real end, which is in God. And so, patient love lets my neighbor be. That doesn't mean that we are absolved from any responsibility to our neighbors, quite the contrary. We must act in our neighbor's regard, sometimes intervening, sometimes correcting or challenging. But if we do so, it is not to line up our neighbor with our view of what he or she ought to be, but in order to lovingly and patiently promote the purpose of God. That's Christian patience. That's that's one of the ways and even as we look at this text, one of, the, one of the main ways that we live as a grace-oriented church. Wanting more for one another, certainly. Wanting each other to, to grow and to, to see sin repented of more and more and more. But if we get grace and we understand it, we can be patient in this way. What a beautiful community that would be. And that's why Paul, in closing, says this in verse seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The way the goodness of God goes public in a church is grace. In the same way that the goodness of God awakens our heart through grace, the goodness of God goes public through a church. Not when there are certain size, not when there are certain age, not when there are certain whatever, 
but when they are gracious with one another. Indeed, as Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another, in accord, what what makes sense with Christ Jesus, that together, as a church, we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the giver and the heartbeat of grace. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your gracious heart that as sin weighed us down, you, you didn't resign us to our sins, but you were patient, loving, and you stepped in to give us grace. God, I, I pray that our hearts would feel that this morning we would receive the welcome that we have in Jesus Christ and it would become real, vivid to us and energize, animate our Christian life. Father, I I thank you for the grace that we have. Make it vivid, Lord, to those of us who don't feel it, who feel our sins more sensitively than we do your grace. Grant us the endurance to be gracious with one another. Grant us the the patience. We need power that's not our own. Let us forgive and be gracious to one another in, in even the most grievous and frustrating of sins and how quickly and how often they come up in relationship. Would you please give us the grace to be gracious, to love one another well, Might we be a church that puts on the goodness of you, God, the glory of you on display through the grace, the lived grace that we have for one another. We trust you for it. Make us into it by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.